The ADHD Coach Podcast is for educational purposes only. If you have any questions about starting or managing your own medication, the best person you could speak to is your own provider. Thank you for tuning in to the ADHD Coach Podcast. I'm your host, Gloria Joy Sherrod, licensed clinical professional counselor and ADHD expert, and I'm here to share with you a wealth of information on how you can manage your ADHD in adulthood. Okay, I am here today with Valerie Revelis. Valerie is a private practice psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. She's worked in the mental health field for 10 years and primarily works with anxiety, depression, bipolar, and ADHD. Her main focus is normalizing mental health in communities of color. Welcome, Valerie. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm so excited for this conversation because I feel like I don't feel like I know I get questions all the time about medication and what medications are good for ADHD and the side effects and all of that. And people are always so hesitant to try the medication because of all the stigma. And so I would love to just get some good information out there about the medication and help people make knowledgeable decisions about what it means to take medication for ADHD. So when it comes to medication management, I always try to look at the whole entire patient, their whole lifestyle. What are they doing? You know, medication management is just a really, really small piece. So there's a couple of steps that I like to walk through first with my patient before we kind of get to that topic of medication management. So one of those things being nutrition, you know, you are what you eat and, you know, dietary changes can really make an impact in terms of what your symptoms are looking like. You know, something as simple as staying hydrated can definitely help with decreasing fatigue, decreasing mood swings and things like that. After we tackle nutrition, I also like to go into what sleep looks like for them. If you're not getting adequate sleep, obviously, you know, it's going to be really hard for you to be able to function throughout your day. So that's a really important thing to look at and examine. Exercise is another thing I like to tackle with patients. Cardiovascular exercise at least three times a week for 30 minutes. It's shown to improve executive functioning, cognition, mood and behavior. And then again, maybe even working with a therapist or ADHD coach. Pills don't teach skills. I like to do that to my patient. One could take all the medication in the world and still spend their entire day on TikTok. So those are just some things I like to go over first with each of the patients before we even jump into what medication management looks like. Now, when it does come to medication management, there are a couple of different ways to approach this. And again, it's different for each patient based on their medical history, their use of substances, genetics, and things like that. But we're looking at stimulants and non-stimulant options. And when it comes to stimulant medications, we have two different types of stimulant products. We have methylphenidate products and amphetamine salts. And they both work equally the same, but you might respond better to one versus the other. And there's a little bit of a trial and error period when it does come to figuring out which medication might work best for you based on your lifestyle. And again, based on genetics and your metabolism and how you break down medication. When it comes to non-stimulant options... We have stuff like Shutera is a great option. And sometimes something like Wellbutrin works really well, too. You want to make sure that the patient, you know, doesn't have any history of anxiety and or depression. Because, again, sometimes when those things are present, certain medications won't work well for them. Or if those things aren't regulated appropriately or under control, again, a similar option may not be a great option. If a patient is using substances, I have a lot of patients who like to use cocaine and are asking for stimulants. I'm probably not going to go down that route with giving them a stimulant, but we can still find ways to manage their symptoms effectively without having to use a stimulant option. So a couple different routes of treatment, but it really depends on the individual. Okay. That's very interesting. With the anxiety, how do you 
assess the difference between anxiety as a result of ADHD and anxiety as a result of just them having anxiety as a separate issue. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, going through a really thorough evaluation is going to be ideal. Really collecting information from their childhood, chicken or the egg, right? Some patients, they have a lot of anxiety because their ADHD symptoms aren't managed. And then others, it's kind of a separate thing, separate from the ADHD. So for me personally, if someone kind of comes to me with both kind of going on or they're bringing up ADHD, but they have anxiety, I do like to try and treat the anxiety first. And if the anxiety is resolved and you're still having a lot of issues with your focus or attention and things like that, then we're like, okay, they have both. Sometimes when we resolve the anxiety, those symptoms of the ADHD resolve. So kind of through trial and error, through treatment, talking with the patient, getting a really good idea of what their lifestyle is like, that allows us to kind of figure out whether it's just anxiety that's kind of overlapping with symptoms that might look like ADHD or do they have both or is it just ADHD by itself? Okay. I love that approach. It's amazing. It's thorough and it kind of addresses everything in order. And that kind of makes me want to go back a little bit about your education and what you do. I know that on your platform, you talk a lot about people asking you what you do or being confused about your role as a prescriber. Can you tell me a little bit about your path and how you got to this point? Yeah, absolutely. So I started off at Stonybrook University. I got my bachelor's of healthcare informatics there. And then I went on to do my bachelor's of nursing at Long Island University in Brooklyn. From there, I spent time working on an inpatient geriatric psych unit for several years. And then after that, I did case management for two behavioral health units um, for a couple of years after that throughout school. Um, so about maybe like six or seven years later of having that experience, I went back and I pursued my master's degree in nursing as a nurse practitioner with a specialty in mental health. Currently, I work in a private practice setting um, where I primarily see patients dealing with ADHD, depression, anxiety, and bipolar disorder. So that's kind of a little bit on my background and kind of what I do now on my day-to-day. Okay, so when it comes to like the difference between like a nurse and a nurse practitioner, what is the main difference? Main difference is that as a nurse practitioner, we have prescribing capabilities, the ability to diagnose patients as well. You're pretty much considered a primary care physician at that point. You know, you're able to, depending on what state you live in in New York, it's um, we're able to practice independently. So we don't need a physician to oversee any of our work or we don't have to ask them to, you know, prescribe medications for us. We're able to work independently once we've completed all our hours that are dictated by the state. So that's one of the main differences is that you have more autonomy. It's more of an independent role and you don't have to really work underneath anyone else. You can kind of have your own case loan and manage your patients on your own. Okay. That's amazing. My own, well, I call him a psychiatrist, but I guess he's not. He has the same credentials as you and he is my favorite prescriber that I've had. He's amazing. And so I don't know, it's something about a different human touch that y'all have. I don't know what it is, but I really like it. People say that a lot. Yeah. They feel like nurses, the way that we are prepared through our education as nurses, we get a lot more training on just like the art of caring, the science of caring. So our background is just a little bit different. So even my Myself, I see nurse practitioners for whatever other services I need because I just feel like they spend more time with you. Their approach is a little bit different. It just feels a bit more warm and inviting. I'm not saying that physicians don't do that, but typically it's just a different style of education that we have. And that's kind of something that I've heard multiple people say across the board in terms of the care that they receive. Yes, I have a lot of doctors for a lot of things. And I can say, yes, that is absolutely true. 
And it's interesting to hear that your education kind of prepares you for that warmness that I feel like y'all can share that with the the medical community as a whole because that's needed. So when it comes to medications, I know that you talked about the stimulant options. What do you think is better, fast acting medication or slow release when it comes to stimulants? So when it comes to fast acting versus long acting, again, it really depends on the patient um, and what their lifestyle is looking like. Preferably, I prefer long acting medications just because, you know, with the short acting medication, there is a more of a risk for, you know, tolerance, dependence, having it utilized a bit more. Typically, I see a lot of my college students will come and they'll want that. They'll want the immediate release because they're trying to control the time in which it lasts. You know, they want to study, things like that. But my patients that are a little bit older, who have jobs, who work nine to fives or have longer days, they ideally like the longer acting medications better. One, it's once a day dosing most of the time for them. Two, it's a bit more smoother. It's not as as much of a like a, a peak as you might get with the immediate release or there's not much of a crash as some people might complain about with the immediate release. But again, it really it's all about how you respond to that medication and how it's affecting you and how it's managing your symptoms. So that will kind of, you know, guide us in terms of which might be a better option for someone. For sure. Yeah, I think so much of it is based on individual experience and lifestyle. And whenever people ask me about medications, I'm like, you know, what works for me is not going to work for you. And it's so different across the board. So when you look at the long acting versus the short acting, would you say that one has less or more side effects? I would want to say that the long acting may have less side effects, but typically, I mean, again, it's really person to person in terms of the side effects. There are a lot of commonalities between both in terms of initial side effects that may or may not, you know, go away for that individual when they first start taking it. And again, I think the biggest thing that people complain about short acting versus long acting is the crash, like not experiencing that crash that they might feel with the immediate release. Or sometimes we take that immediate release, it's a little bit too overstimulating or they feel a little bit increased nervousness or dizziness or, you know, tremors and things like that. It's just a little bit too much for them at one time. So I guess that would be the best way to kind of approach. Okay. And then let's see, what are some of the other side effects that you've seen in people? Yeah, definitely. So experiencing side effects during the beginning of treatment is really, really common. They usually get much more tolerable or go away, like I mentioned earlier, entirely as your body gets adjusted to medication, which can take up to weeks sometimes. And although, you know, you don't have to take them every single day, I usually encourage people in the beginning to take them more consistently because their body can adjust and we can give the medication a fair trial. But some of the more common um, side effects that people may experience is headaches, dry mouth, constipation, usually in the beginning of treatment, and they can be minimized by staying hydrated. Headaches can be minimized by remembering tea. Keeping your blood sugar levels steady throughout the day with small snacks, especially if you get appetite suppression as a side effect of the stimulant, which happens for a lot of people. Nausea for people with sensitive stomachs. So especially if you're taking the medications on an empty stomach, you know, and you're having intolerable nausea, you might want to take it with or after a meal, which is not particularly recommended. But again, if you're having a lot of nausea and the medication is beneficial to you, then you have to make adjustments. Irritability, insomnia. The irritability can be that maybe you're not on the right formulation of medication or maybe there's an unresolved other disorder at play. And then insomnia, you sometimes you need to change up the time that you're taking the medication. Some people may be taking it too late. They're taking it at one o'clock in the afternoon and taking an extended release medication where that's lasting just way too long. So those are just some more of the common side effects that people may experience when they first start. A lot of it does resolve, but if it doesn't, you need to talk to your healthcare provider about those things that are going on to find you a better alternative to managing your symptoms. 
Okay. So sometimes people will see these side effects up front, but then after taking it for a couple of weeks, they won't feel them as much. Right. And then at that point, if they still are, that's when you think about adjusting. Correct. Correct. Okay. And then the crash. So the crash that you described, what does that usually look like for people? The crash will look like feeling really tired or maybe irritable. It's like they're feeling great throughout the day. And then somehow like through the middle of the day or toward the end of the day when the medication's wearing off, they just start getting kind of really a little down, you know, a little bit and just that feeling of tiredness and not really feeling super motivated to, you know, to do anything. So that's kind of the opposite effect of when they first start taking the medication. Yeah. And what do you recommend people do for crash? So when it comes to the crash, I mean, I have some patients who do take magnesium uh, glycinate in the evenings, uh, which helps with like a calming effect. Again, and I'm not telling anyone to go and take this without speaking to their healthcare provider first, but that's something that some of my patients like, and I'll, I'll offer to them as an option to kind of help with that crash. Sometimes changing the dosage, changing the dose of your ADHD medication can help with managing that, adjusting the timing of when you're taking it. Also, sometimes if it's really intolerable for you, switching to a different stimulant medication or a different formulation in terms of instant release versus extended release. For some people, again, there might be some underlying other mental health conditions. So maybe adding an antidepressant medication to assist with some of the mood swings might be helpful. Or even maybe adding a booster dose of ADHD medication in the evening, afternoon to help with lowering the crash effects as well. Okay, that's awesome. That's another thing that I get questions about all the time is what do we do about crash? So that's very helpful. So let's see, we already covered pre-existing anxiety. And then will stimulant medications eventually stop working for someone in terms of like building a tolerance? So if you were to take a stimulant medication every day for years without taking breaks, your body will eventually develop a tolerance to that dosage. Older research encouraged people taking stimulant medications to take the weekends off. However, ADHD symptoms don't naturally disappear on the weekends. So some of the newer research says that it's best to take extended breaks throughout the year, usually three breaks each year, four to five days long. This does way more for tolerance buildup than just taking a weekend off or a day off here and there. So to answer your question, it's yes. You know, you definitely can develop a tolerance, um, especially if you're taking it over time. So there are some things that you can do to try and help out with that to avoid it. Okay. And at what point? So I know that sometimes people start on a lower dose of a stimulant medication and then they slowly work their way up. Would you say that you, at a certain point you encourage people to take a break instead of raising their dose? That really depends on kind of what's going on with them and what's happening because sometimes, you know, it's not that a higher dose may be required. Sometimes they have increased stressors going on in their life. Sometimes work become more stressful. So you have to get really good at asking a lot of questions when you do what I do, because, you know, sometimes patients, they don't know. So they'll just say, oh, I need a higher dose. I need a higher dose. Meanwhile, it could be something that maybe could be alleviated through therapy and talking to someone. Maybe they really do have some unresolved um, anxiety and depression that hasn't been addressed. Perhaps you can look at removing the stressor if possible that's causing them to kind of lose their focus. So I kind of reassess every time that I meet with them monthly to kind of see what's going on. Because it's not always a medication adjustment that's warranted. You know, again, looking at your sleep, looking at your diet, at your exercise. So those are some things to kind of consider. But again, if we're looking at all those things and the medication is just not working as well, you're developing a tolerance. And of course, yeah, we'll need to increase that dosage to kind of manage your symptoms a bit more effectively. Okay, great. 
Are there long-term effects that people need to be aware of when it comes to ADHD medications? Yeah, definitely. So the way that the stimulant medication works, I'm referring specifically to stimulant medication because I mentioned there are other alternatives, but when it comes specifically to stimulant medication, they do kind of work directly on your heart. So that's why typically one, when I'm first prescribing a medication, a stimulant medication to a patient, I always want to get a really good family history on them baseline EKG. And also I like to do blood work and sometimes a drug screen just to ensure that we're good to go because of the nature by which stimulants work. So if that patient has family history of sudden cardiac death or any close relatives who might have died suddenly of heart disease, stroke, heart attack before age 55, then, you know, I'll let them know there have been reports of sudden cardiac death and people taking stimulant medication. And, you know, they do have the potential to cause elevations in your heart rate, your blood pressure, so again, I like to do all of those things with them prior to starting the medication and having that very candid conversation. And then I also tell them, hey, go get a blood pressure cuff, get one off Amazon or Walgreens or in Reed, your pharmacy, and take your blood pressure before taking your medication and take it about an hour after. Let's track it. Let's see if there's any significant changes in your blood pressure with the medication. Are you experiencing any chest pain, palpitation, headaches, dizziness that are new with the onset of the medication that we started you on? So that's also really important because like I said, again, you really want to monitor the cardiac function over time because of how the medication works. Um, and as well, their caffeine intake. I know people who are like throwing back cups of Starbucks, two, three, four cups of Starbucks, and they're on like, you know, Adderall Center release, 30 milligrams a day, plus all this caffeine. That's a lot. You got to check your teas, right? Most of these teas are caffeinated. You really have to watch your caffeine intake because using all these things together simultaneously can definitely you know, cause some issues for you later on down the line if you're not careful. Yes. I tell people that all the time, like, why are y'all still having a cup of coffee in the morning and you're on Adderall? You do not need that. Please don't do that. Yeah, not good in terms of increasing side effects and all of that. Not good. Yeah. When I recommend it for some people with that, because some people, it's not even the caffeine per se from the coffee. Some people really just like coffee or it's like more of just a habit thing for them. So kind of working them to work their way towards decaf or, you know, reducing their amount of caffeine intake over time is realistic because, again, it's hard to break a habit sometimes. So to stop cold turkey for people is a little challenging. So I try to meet people where they're at and then see how can we kind of lessen, you know, your intake over time as well. Yes, I love that. I, yeah, I started drinking like hot chocolate and just other warm things at first. And then I got diabetes. So now we're doing none of those drinks with sugar in them. But definitely there are tons of warm options that are also sugar free and caffeine free. Right. So are there side effects that would trigger you to think that somebody does not have ADHD and that the diagnosis is not correct? Absolutely. So typically if a patient is on a stimulant medication of some sort, and they're experiencing a lot of irritability, increased mood swings, just the complete opposite. The medication is actually making them feel worse than feeling better. That's kind of a red flag to me. It's kind of like, hmm, okay. And as we're trying different stuff, because again, certain medications may affect them differently. If we're trying more than one stimulant medication and you're having the same exact type of response or you know, I'll get patients who are maxed out like on super high dosages of stimulants and you're still trying to go up further or you're still not getting management of your symptoms. That's letting me know 
there is something else going on, whether it's an organic cause, something medically going on with you, or there's an underlying mental health disorder that has not been addressed appropriately. Those things definitely come to my mind immediately. And it's like, okay, you have to have a real conversation with that patient at that time. And some people are in denial. Some people are, don't want to hear anything else about depression, anxiety. It's, I have ADHD only. So again, you get really good at kind of figuring out which patients, you know, really do want the help and don't. Because the ones that really do want the help are going to be open to hearing what you have to say, your recommendations and trying to make some changes. And then there are some that are not going to be. And again, as a provider, you're kind of put in a tough space because you have to choose whether or not this is an appropriate patient to work with. But definitely if they're having those type of reactions and nothing is working, it's definitely setting up a red flag to say, hey, something else is going on. We got to figure out what it is, because right now the way that your treatment is going, it's not giving you full alleviation of your symptoms. Absolutely. That is so important. And I agree. I think sometimes the stigma involved in other diagnoses makes it hard for people to say like, okay, this is not working. So maybe this is not only ADHD or maybe this is something else. When you're looking at someone who is having this increased irritability and those kind of challenges, what diagnoses usually come to mind for you? If we're talking about mental health disorders, one, it could be depression, it could be anxiety, or it could possibly be a mood disorder, something like a bipolar disorder that's being activated by the stimulant medication. Bipolar 2 disorder is really commonly misdiagnosed or missed by a lot of providers. And people will experience depression, anxiety, and it may look like that. But, you know, providers kind of skip that part and they miss that part. And again, they're on the stimulant medication because one, they're not sleeping, right? They're having mania, they have insomnia. So of course they can't focus. So they end up on a stimulant medication for treatment of ADHD, almost like a Band-Aid to compensate for the symptoms that they're experiencing when in fact, it's really something else going on. But again, it's not everybody, you know, who doesn't respond well to stimulants has a mood disorder or with anxiety and depression. Sometimes our patients like to do a lot of drugs and they don't tell us. I'll be really honest with you. And that's why I like to do the drug screens too. But if you're using substances on a regular basis, that also can alter your mood and things like that and doesn't allow, you know, stimulants, the medications to work as effectively. Most of the time, if I have a patient who tells me they smoke marijuana every day, again, maybe we need to cut that back first before we decide to add a stimulant on because it's a little bit counterproductive. You end up having a depressant with a stimulant counterproductive. Not to mention, I've kind of observed over time, my patients who smoke marijuana pretty much every day usually require higher dosing of their medications too. I'm not sure all the mechanics behind it, but I'm pretty sure it's something to do with the receptors that are being blocked in the brain when you do smoke marijuana and it doesn't allow medications to work as effectively. So again, you know, all these different things come to mind when medications aren't working. I'm thinking, are they using substances? Is there something else like anxiety and depression? Is there a mood disorder? Or is there something more organic going on with that individual? Wow. I'm so glad you spoke on marijuana because that is one that I I don't know how to answer that question ever. Because people people ask if that's a remedy for ADHD. First of all, I do not understand how. I don't know how anybody gets work done, ADHD or not, um, with marijuana. But people say that's a thing. I feel like people think that it calms them down, perhaps, and in turn helps them focus. I don't know about that. But then I would think more of an anxiety than ADHD in that case. So the way I like to explain it to sometimes the people when they use marijuana often, because it's nothing, I'm not going to say it's nothing wrong with social, social use, but when you're using something, any substance every single day, 
I mean, it's considered a drug. You're using something every single day because you're trying to make up for something else that's going on. And I kind of like to tell people, you know, most of the time when you smoke and you try to relax, that act of smoking, that deep breathing that you're doing is relaxing your nervous system. So it's almost kind of like you're simulating taking deep breaths or using some sort of relaxation technique. So in fact, you know, you could probably try and replace that out with some sort of deep breathing exercise and see if that's also helpful. Because a lot of people, when they smoke cigarettes or they smoke marijuana, that's what's literally happening. You're taking deep breaths and you're taking a moment and your body's kind of relaxing. So like you said, yeah, it does bring up anxiety as kind of being a thing. So I kind of put it to them that way a little bit and that helps. And then also, again, when they're a little weary about taking a medication for depression and or a stimulant, I kind of go back to what you're taking marijuana every single day. You're smoking it every day, you know, same thing. And it's almost you're taking this drug, which is not super regulated versus something else that might be controlled by a prescriber. So you have to really weigh out the risks versus benefits. And then again, see where your patient is at. I really kind of have that conversation with them and decide whether or not they're appropriate, you know, to be under my care. There are some providers who don't care, you know, and they'll prescribe anything and it doesn't matter what the patient is taking. But on my end, I really care about them getting better. So it's like if you're really complaining about these symptoms and you really want to get better, then we really have to come up with a game plan that works and figure out what we can change throughout your lifestyle to kind of help mitigate some of those symptoms. Absolutely. That is amazing. I get so nervous when I see providers not checking with other, you know, uh, providers that that person may have or other issues that they might have, like the high blood pressure or heart issues in their family. Like, yeah. And oh, I was going to say earlier about the blood pressure cuff. I think some insurances provide those for free or they'll cover it. I got mine covered by insurance. um, And it is so important when on a stimulant to be checking your blood pressure for sure. I had one more question and I'm going to try to retrieve it from my brain really quickly. Oh, okay. About substances. What do you recommend in terms of people socially drinking and things like that while they're on these medications? So again, I'm a realist, you know, people are going to do the things. So again, anything in moderation, but obviously you never want to mix your medication with alcohol. It's just, it doesn't have, you know, could affect on on the individual long term, their health and everything like that. So again, you have to do a really good assessment and see, you know, how often are they drinking? Is it more, is there a drinking problem? Is alcohol use disorder, you know, a possibility? So again, I'm I'm realistic. A lot of people are going to have a drink here and there. There's some patients who are overly cautious, like, no, I'm just going to drink it all. I'm scared. Cool. That's fine. But then there's some that are going to drink. And I always tell them, be mindful. Or if you really do plan on drinking, You know, if you could skip your medication for the day, you know what I mean? There's different levels of severity of ADHD. I have some patients who can't drive a car without their ADHD medication. They are that easily distracted, right? Someone like that probably needs to take their medication every day. But some people really use it just for the work setting. So when they're on vacation, if they're out with friends, they don't need to use it. So if you plan on drinking, then I would say kind of hold up on your medication for the day. So all in all, taking alcohol with your medications is never recommended, but I know people are going to do it. So definitely be smart about it and in moderation, of course. Okay. Awesome. That is great advice. I am just really happy with this interview. I feel like 
I could tell from your page how careful and thoughtful and caring you are as a provider. So I really appreciate your really good knowledge and education. Can you tell people where they can find you online and all that good stuff? Yes, absolutely. So my Instagram handle is read to manifest F-R-E-E-D-T-O-M-A-N-I-F-E-S-T. I'm actually going to be launching my private practice really, really soon by the end of the month. So there'll be more details to follow on my Instagram page. So if you follow that page, you'll definitely get some updates to that. And I service only patients in New York for the time being, but I will be expanding to other states as well very, very soon. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was great having you. You too. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the ADHD Coach Podcast. For more information, you can visit my website, GloriaJoyShirad.com. There you'll find information about coaching packages, purchasing my book, Adulting with ADHD, and viewing my documentary, also Adulting with ADHD. And of course, don't forget to subscribe.